Well, amen. What a great, great morning of singing and worshiping. If you will, take your Bible and find your place in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And as um, you're finding your place, again, we have a great attendance this morning. It's just been phenomenal in the last several weeks of just how many people the Lord is bringing to our church as far as guests and, and uh, just um, growing greatly right now. In fact, uh, we've got several who are watching us online. I think today is the first day officially that we're re, uh, exclusively streaming through our own uh, Web page through our own browser there and, and not going through Facebook Live, which we have done for uh, 20 months or so. Uh, we just we decided to go a different direction. It gives us better quality, more control over it, and uh, you just never know what things are going to happen with Facebook Live. And so uh, today we have several who are online watching it. And in fact, I just got a text as I was walking up here with a family who are on the road today and just said, hey, thanks for letting us do this and worshiping here. Uh, with Red Lane as you guys are, or else we're away and you guys are there. It's so exciting we can be able to do that. But man, it's good to see you this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to be in just a moment. But I want to remind you of a verse you probably are very familiar with. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember that verse? You probably haven't memorized. It's one of those verses you have heard many times in church. Maybe you've memorized it yourself. But uh, these words were spoken by Jesus in, in what's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. If, Mount. if you were to go to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, you'd see Jesus there teaching, giving very practical uh, ways to live your life, how you should live your life. In fact, in chapter 6, we find Jesus teaching on the spiritual disciplines that ought to be a part of our life as a believer. Uh, he talks about giving to those in need. He goes on and he begins to describe how you should, should pray and how you should fast. He talks about the proper use of material material things. You see, Jesus, when he was teaching, was fully aware of every ramification that we face in this life and all the things that are there. He understood the lure of wealth and prosperity and how they pose a threat to our lives, uh, how, how they're dangerous to us. See, he understood how it's easy for us to lock in on money and earthly possessions and, and how they have a tendency to block the light of God. The light of God goodness, the things that we've been singing about this morning. You see, Jesus understood that, that earthly things, when we are fixated upon them, cause us to become self-absorbed and blind to the needs of others. Rather than seeing others in need, all we can see is what we have and how we want to continue to hold on to it. Jesus understood that earthly treasures become a rival to him, to him as our master and as our Lord. Now, before you begin to think that, that Jesus condemned wealth or Jesus spoke ill of wealth, he never did that. In fact, you search the Gospels, you look through the Bible in its entirety, all 66 books, you'll never find a verse in Scripture that condemns wealth or, or passes judgment on someone who has wealth. In fact, what you will see is over and over again, people like Job and, and uh, Abraham and people like that who had great wealth, King David and King Solomon, they had incredible wealth. And yet what you see is that Jesus and the Word of God in its entirety warn us against the dangers of wealth, putting our allegiance in it as master. In fact, there in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. If you haven't figured it out yet, money makes a terrible God. 
It is a terrible God, any, just like anything else. If God is not our God, what we put in place there is a terrible little g God. You see, the one who worships at the God of, the, the, the God of materialism, the altar there for the God of materialism, that person is typically an anxious person. It's a person who's constantly worried about holding on to what they possess, up and down in, in their emotions, up and down in their anxiety, based upon how their influence or their, in, their wealth is being influenced and growing. But that's not the life for the Christ follower. Jesus commands us over and over again to trust him, to put our faith in him, to rest in him. He's the God who takes care of the birds, therefore he's the God who's going to take care of us. He's faithful, he's good. He's going to meet our needs. Our responsibility is simply to fix our eyes upon Jesus, to seek first his kingdom, and then he says all of these things will be added to you. He's going to take care of all of our needs, in other words. See, as Christians, as we approach life from that perspective, that's a very unconventional way to live. We're talking this, at this point in, in this fall uh, about possessions. We're talking about money. We're talking about stewardship is a better word. In fact, two weeks ago, we launched into this series called Vision 2024. And we're talking about what the next three years is going to look like for our church. And we looked there in Exodus chapter 35 and 36, and we saw that God began to stir the hearts of his people toward the vision he had placed upon their hearts. He began to move them in that direction, and they began to give all the things that the Lord had given to them to provide for this vision for his people. We saw how the Lord leads his people to do things that they never would imagine possible. Who would have thought that a slave people, uh, a people who had been enslaved for 400 years, could literally walk out of Egypt having plundered them and then move into the wilderness on the way to the promised land and have everything that they needed to provide for the worship of God? And yet that's what the Lord did. We see that story uh, recapitulated over and over again in the Word of God. We've seen it in our own story as a local church. we were talking about vision and a couple of weeks ago, we made this statement. The prophetic vision that God gives us always produces two things. That is redemptive passion and then a responsive action. What we mean by that is this. We're going to love what God loves, and we're going to engage in what he is doing. We're going to have redemptive passion, in other words. This vision that he gives us begins to beget venture. It means it moves us to get on board and to follow him and where he's leading. As a church, we've experienced this vision venture, if you will, for a number of years. You think of all the things we've done just in the last five to six years as a local church. As we sensed his leading us, we began to tweak our methods around here. We began to think, how can we do this better? How can we better reach and minister to people and engage them? We began to update our facilities and do things to, to bring things up to date from a standpoint of just the facilities and the campus. We began to lean into missions more and more, wanting to not just be a church that, that prays and gives, but a church that's going, a church that's involved in church planning, a church that's, that's doing more here locally, doing more internationally, doing more within our own nation. While vision produces those two things of redemptive passion and, and a responsive action, what it does, though, is it forces us into a crisis of decision. 
It forces us to ask the question of, will we shrink back in fear or will we boldly step out in faith and trust the Lord and the vision he's put in our hearts? So we're faced with this decision. Do we move on or do we shrink back? Israel was faced with the same thing. I just mentioned Exodus 35 and 36. What we see also in that story of Israel is they express great faith at this point, but a little bit later, when it's time for them to take the final step into the promised land, they send spies in, Numbers 13 and 14. They spy it out. It's exactly God as God had said it would be, but there's giants there. And so rather than saying we can and we should move forward, they shrunk back and says we cannot. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We're always faced with this crisis of decision when God calls us to step out and to believe him for the next movement. Fear leads to disbelief. It leads to rebellion. But faith will lead us to blessing and it will lead us to more faith. See, we take that first step and then we have the ability to take the next and then the next and the next. That's what the Lord wants us to do. It all comes down to vision, believing the vision. We need vision, right? We need vision. You, you need vision to be able to see physically. If you have cataracts or if you need a prescription that you've not yet went to the eye doctor, you have a, uh, you have a hindrance there. You're not able to see like you want to see. You need to be able to see clearly. Vision enables us to be, enables us to see and to be able to do what we're supposed to do gives us propensity to be productive. It doesn't guarantee it, but it puts us on the playing field. There's where we can exercise faith. That's the part of the equation that we need to exercise. So as we read through these passages that we've been looking at, what we see is God stirs our hearts to embrace his vision. That's what he did to Israel. And then we're faced with that crisis of decision. What will we do? Well, last week in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, we saw there that Paul admonishes us as the church to, to understand and to believe that God desires to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think. He, he, he outdreams us in everything that we set out to do. He outdreams us in that. In fact, when we started New Day three plus years ago, we laid out a, a verse there. It was kind of our, our one verse that laid the groundwork for what we believe God was doing, and it's Habakkuk 1.5, that I'm going to do something in your midst. I'm going to do something in your days that if you were told, you would not believe it. And who would have thought three plus years later we were able to do all that we've done as this church? God is the one who outdreams us. God's the one who puts the dreams in our hearts. We just have to put faith to it. We have to put feet to the task. And so once we in faith put our yes on the table, it becomes apparent that God's activity will largely run on the rails of our open hands. You say, God has put this vision in my heart and I'm saying yes to it. Now he needs to do it. Yeah, he's going to do it, but he's going to do it through you. God's always going to do that through you. We saw that as we looked at Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 last week. God is the one who gives us the faith. He gives us the resources, and we have to step out and believe him and trust him and do it. So what is that going to require? It's going to require a generous heart. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Hearts that give generously. You see, the amazing thing about all of this is that it does not necessitate that we be millionaires or have incredible resources as the Macedonians in which we're going to look at in just a moment. All we have to do is say yes. All we have to do is believe. All we have to do is step out in faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 the Apostle Paul is 
speaking to the church in Corinth. He's talking to them about the vision God has placed upon his heart, a vision that he has shared with this church previously, the year before, a vision that he has shared with other churches. It's now on his third missionary journey, and he's coming back, and he's encouraging them to participate. If you wanted to know this full story of what's going on here, you can find it in Acts chapter 18 through Acts chapter 21. Paul there is preparing for this third missionary journey. And on this journey, he has two two main purposes. He wants to plant the gospel. He wants to edify churches in Asia Minor and Europe. That's always what he's seeking to do. He wants to plant a new church. He he wants to come back and visit a church he's already planted, encourage them, strengthen them, uh, help solidify leadership there. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make disciples and win people to Jesus. But he also has a second purpose. He wants to raise a large amount of money to minister and to meet the needs of Jewish Christians back in Judea. Those Jewish Christians were in dire straits. They were destitute because of famine as well as because of persecution. See, when they said yes and broke away from Judaism, their families and their employers and the community in which they lived largely said bye-bye to them. They ostracized them. They, They kicked them out of their community. And so they were left in very dire, difficult straits. Paul knew that they needed a large infusion of cash. He also knew that if the Greek and Gentile churches in Europe could and would meet this need, then it would help heal this rift that was growing within the body of Christ, the church, both Jew and Gentile. And so during this third missionary tour, what the apostle is doing is he's mounting this special one-of-a-kind effort to raise a large amount of money to send back to Judea to minister and to meet the needs of his brothers and sisters, their brothers and sisters in that region of the world. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul here is sharing with the believers in Corinth how believers in Macedonia had responded to his vision for giving to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters back in Judea. Now, who are these Macedonians? Were they a bunch of wealthy people? Were they a bunch of aristocrats? Did they have a mansion on every hill? Did they have large bank accounts? No, that's not who they were at all. The Macedonians were not a wealthy group of believers, but what we see here is that they gave above and beyond their means to be a blessing and to participate in God's provision for those back in Judea, their brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul, what he's doing here is he's sharing their story as a way to motivate the Corinthian believers to participate in this vision, this calling to minister to the body of Christ back in Judea. I want you to take your Bible there, if you got it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and let's read verses 1 through 15. Now that you kind of hopefully got some context of what's going on here, this should make a little bit more sense. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected... But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so we should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, 
and in all earnestness and in our love for you, or you could translate that in your love for us, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that, in, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. What do we learn from these verses? What we learn here is that Christians give generously in response to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we give because we have first received the miraculous gift. What is it that we've received as Christians? Think about the cross. Think about the bloodshed there on the cross. Think about that empty tomb. Think about the resurrection life that comes through Jesus. That is what we receive in him. See, when we understand the magnitude and the beauty of what Jesus has given us through the cross and what he's given us through that empty tomb, then how could we not give in response to grace? How could we not generously want to be a blessing to other people? And so with that in mind, let me just share with you quickly this morning four truths about generous giving. How can we be a generous people? What are we to understand about this idea of giving? First of all, generous giving, when we think about it, it is an act of grace. Generous giving is an act of grace. You see, what we find here in the opening verse of this chapter uh, is a very unusual use of the word grace. We typically think of grace uh, such as this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We connect it to the gospel. We connect it to the cross. We connect it to the blood that was shed for our sins. We connect it to uh, a resurrection life. We connect it to the new life we have in Jesus. And it is what it is. But Paul here uses grace as a kind of synonym for the act of financial giving. Look there, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. See, the Macedonian churches were those congregations there in northern Greece that had given a sacrificial offering toward this campaign. And Paul, as I mentioned earlier, wants to use their example to motivate the believers in Corinth. Often, when we see or hear an example, it's an encouragement to us. Many times we won't do anything unless we see someone else do it first. It's amazing, you know, in church life, we, uh, we always have a response time here. And I can remember as a kid sitting in, uh, in, in whether it was our student ministry or it was a big church, as we used to call it, with uh, adults and kids and everybody in between. Uh, it, it's amazing, myself and others included. You feel like the Lord's moving your heart. You feel like you need to respond in some way, but you're just a little hesitant. But if someone else would move... It encourages you to move as well. Now, you don't have to step out to respond to the Lord. We know that, but sometimes you need to. Sometimes you you ought to. That's that's slang. That's southern slang for you should do that, right? You ought to. 
I, I had uh, Jeff Foxworthy go through my head just there for a minute, his rendition about uh, the words in the South. You ought to. You ought to move when the Spirit's moving. But sometimes we just need some encouragement. We need to see others doing it as well. And that's what Paul's doing here is using the Macedonians to encourage and, and, and spur on the Corinthians in this desire to fulfill the vision. Look down at verse 6. And notice that the word grace here is again used in this way. He says, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. This refers to the financial gift Paul was expecting from the Christians in Corinth. So he refers to it to this anticipated act of grace. He describes it in the same way in verse 7. He talks about it in verse 9. Paul there is connected in verse 9 a little bit differently, but it's, again, this idea of grace being given. And there he's saying, hey, give in such a way like you've been giving, and he connects it to Jesus and what he's done for us. As a Christian, when we talk about grace, it's usually connected to mercy. We think about the mercy that we've received from the Lord. So what is grace and mercy when we talk about salvation? Grace could be defined this way. Grace is you receiving that which you do not deserve. That's what Jesus gives us. Forgiveness, uh, cleansing, holiness, new life, relationship with the God who created you for himself. Does anybody deserve that? No. The Bible says we're all sinners and fall short of his glory. We all are condemned by our sin. We're all separated. None of us seek after God, Romans 3.10 tells us. No, we don't deserve that at all, but in grace, God gives us that. So what's mercy? Mercy is you not receiving what you do deserve. So what, is you, what do you as a sinner deserve? Judgment. Why? Because you've sinned against a holy God. You infinitely deserve judgment. Why? Because you've infinitely sinned against an infinite God. That's why the punishment is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That is a literal place, by the way. That's what we deserve. But in mercy, God relents from that and gives us forgiveness. He gives us forgiveness of sin. He gives us new life. So he doesn't give us what we deserve, but he gives us what we do not deserve. That's how we think of grace and mercy. Paul is connecting it to the act of giving here. Generous giving is an act of grace. What does that mean? It means what Paul's talking about here is not uh, coercion. It's not command. In fact, he says, hey, I'm talking about something that's not a command. It's grace giving. You're giving in response to the wonderful, beautiful gift that God's already given you. Giving, generous giving is an act of grace as we are just absolutely overwhelmed by the goodness of God and we want to be the conduit that flows that back out on behalf of the Lord to be a blessing to others. It's the function of choosing to lavishly bless a cause or a person simply because you want to do so. There's a second truth that I want you to know about generous giving and that is it is in response to the means of God. Now I know what some of you are thinking. This guy is again preaching on money or stewardship again, and, and I don't have any to give. So how am I even going to do what you're asking me to do? First of all, you don't know what I'm asking you to do. So let's just hold the horses just a, a tad, right? But here's what I want you to see before we even get to that point. It's not according to your means. It's in response to the means, the resources, the banking account of Almighty God. Again, referring to the churches of Macedonia, what does Paul say in verse 2? 
He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, who's there? The Macedonians in their uh, test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So what can we say about these churches in Macedonia, Macedonia who had made such significant contribution to the Lord's work? What can we say about them? Are these people rich? Well, I've already told you that they were not. In fact, we see very clearly from the word of God that they were impoverished. He says extreme poverty. So the answer is no here. They're not enjoying a time of prosperity. Therefore, okay, for okays, we're not just busting at the seams. That was not the condition of the Macedonians. But what they had, they understood they had it because God had given it. So they generously gave it to others. That's what we see here. Giving in response to the means of God. They were going through this severe trial, and yet they possessed overflowing joy. They're living in poverty, and yet somehow this resulted in a richness of generosity that served as an example to not just the Corinthian believers, but all of the churches throughout the Roman world. How were they able to do this? Look at verse 5. We see here that they first gave themselves to God, and then they gave themselves by the will of God to Paul and Timothy and the vision set before them. See, their yes was on the table, and they said, Lord God, you're you're master of my entire life. Everything that I have, my family, my friends, my possessions, uh, my future, it's all yours. Do with it what you want. I will give in accordance. So they give themselves to the Lord. Hey, we go back to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, again, teaching there on the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us you can't serve God and money. He tells us where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And then in verse 33, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So they understood that the best place for the Christian to live is in the will of God with their hearts set on God and his kingdom. And when that's the case, it's not their stuff, it's his stuff so they were giving in response to the means of almighty god sometimes we can hear people say something like well you know i'll try to do such and such to the best of my ability but when you make a statement like that as a christian you've misunderstood the text here they're not giving according to their ability they were giving according to god's ability We as Christians are to operate on the basis of God's ability, his strength, his power. Look at the way it's put in verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. How do we give above our means? Good question. Flip over to the next chapter. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Look at verse 10. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see the answer to that question? 
How, how do we step out and, and trust the vision? How do we step out and, and trust the Lord's leading us in this vision? We look at our finances. We look at, at, at all of the things that we have or don't have, and we begin to weigh those out, and yet our heart is leading us to, to move in a certain direction, and it doesn't make sense on paper. How are we to do that? You give yourself first to God and then to the will of God and the vision he's put on your heart. And verse 8 10 and 11 in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 begin to be fulfilled in your life. He makes it happen. You remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples? It's there in the Sermon of Mount as well, I believe. And uh, he's got a bunch of people on the hillside and, and Jesus, or the disciples come and like, hey, man, these guys are hungry. We need to dismiss them so they can go and get some food and, and maybe they can come back, we can teach later. And he's like, no, you feed them right now. They're like, we, we couldn't do this. In fact, if we dismissed them now and they went into the villages, there wouldn't be enough food to feed the thousands who are here. How could we feed them? He's like, what do you have? And he's like, well, we found this kid. He's got, uh, what, two fishes and five loaves or five fishes and two loaves, whichever way it goes. doesn't really matter when God's in the equation. He's like, bring that here. He begins to thank the Lord. He begins to bless it and, and break the bread, and they begin to pass it out. And when it's all said and done, everyone's fat and happy. And they got 12 basketfuls of crumbs left over. The cats were happy afterwards, in other words. The Lord did it. The Lord did it. There's a third thing I want you to see about generous giving. Not only does it call us to give in response to the means of God, but thirdly, it's to be championed. Generous giving is to be championed in our lives. Look at verse 7. Chapter 8, verse 7. Seven. Paul says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, or as I said earlier, you can translate that in your love for us, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This act of grace. Paul here is speaking of the financial gift that he's expecting from the Christians there in Corinth. That's the, this act of grace. And so he's calling them here to excel, to, to, to move up. That's what this word literally means. If we were to look at it in the Greek, you would just see we, it's translated to excel. It also can be translated abound. You can think of it in this standpoint of leveling up. And so those of you from my generation and younger that played video games, you might understand this, that as you play a video game, Nate, you, you begin to level up and you become stronger, able to do more things within the game. <laughs> You're getting a little charismatic on me. <laughs> tone it down a little bit. Paul's saying, hey, you need to excel. You need to level up. You need to abound in your generosity and your ability to give. Generous giving requires a believer to champion this in his or her life. It requires a church to champion this. What do I mean by that? You have to intentionally work at this. You do not fall into generosity. Much like you do not fall into discipleship. You don't fall into godliness. You don't fall into holiness. You don't fall into reading your Bible and getting up early and spending time with the Lord. You will not fall into those things. You have to champion them in your life. So if you want to be a generous Christian, if we want to be a generous church, we have to say this is something just like our holiness and, and, and all of the things that Paul's listing here, just like we're seeking to be a faithful people and a godly people, and we know the word of God and we can teach the word of God and we can share the gospel with others, just as we want to grow in those, we want to grow in our generosity. 
We want to get to a place where we understand that, hey, this is not my stuff, it's his stuff, and, and if there's a need, I'm the conduit to meet that need. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what he's encouraging and admonishing them to do. Champion this in your lives. These first three truths have dealt with what we might call the what of generous giving. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What are we to do? This fourth and final truth presents the why. Why do we need to do this? Here's what I want you to see about generous giving. It models the heart of Jesus. As you think about why we need to be generous, it's because it models the heart of Jesus. There in verse 9, Paul tells us that giving is this act of grace. Remember, this is this phrase we've been looking at. It mirrors, in other words, the grace of God himself. Look what he says in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might by his poverty become rich. Now, what is Paul driving at here? How do we know God was rich? He's God. He owns it all, right? It's just like when my kids are fighting over something that they have and it's in my house, I come up and say, that's not yours to begin with. It's mine. I own it. It's my house. I'm sovereign over this house, right? They love when I do that. <laughs> love it. Amen. Yes, they love it. That's the idea with us. God is the one who owns it all. We're just stewards. We're just managers. He gives it to us for a time, but it's his. He's the one who created it all. And so he is rich. He's rich in his holiness. He's rich in his goodness. He's rich in his redemption. And he left the glory of heaven and he came to earth and impoverished himself with flesh so that he might be our redeemer. That's what it's talking about. See, Paul's connecting our financial giving to our spiritual life in Jesus. And he says he became poor when he was rich so that you in your impoverished sinful state might become rich in God. And we give out of that. We give because it models the heart of Jesus. So giving is the result of God's work of grace in our own lives. I mentioned earlier that we're not givers by nature. You don't fall into that. Think about what we are by nature. We are sinful by nature. We are selfish by nature. We are self-absorbed by nature. If you don't believe that, I've said this before many times. We can take a stroll downstairs into the nursery and hang out with a couple um, few, I don't know, dozen or so kids that are two years and younger. And you'll learn real quick that that stuff comes by nature. When they're fighting over toys and fighting over food and fighting over the place to set rather than saying, yeah, you can have that. Yeah, I, I don't need that today. That doesn't come natural. We have to teach that into them. Ultimately, it has to be born into us afresh and anew through the life of Jesus. We're self-absorbed, self-centered. We're stingy as human beings in our sin. Spending and consuming come easily to us. Think about that. This is a reality that's not lost in the credit card companies. There's a reason that when I turned 18 and never asked for a credit card, all of a sudden I'm pre-approved as a freshman in college. Wow, I've got money that I didn't even know where it came from, and I can buy stuff. You know what I did? I ran up a huge credit card bill on gas and fishing rods and lures and everything I needed so I could fish three or four times a week with my buddies. Free money, right? They understood the selfishness of a human being and sent me a credit card pre-approved right out of high school. That's who we are. That's why so many people, despite the prosperity of our nation, are steeped in debt. 
But as we grow in the grace of Jesus Christ, what happens to us? We we begin to be be more like him. We're conformed more and more into his image. We begin to understand the value of sacrifice. We begin to think about denying self rather than gratifying self. We grow concerned about the souls of men and women, and we come to understand that giving is godlike. Think about that. You're never more like Jesus than when you give. Giving is godlike. It's not that you are God but you're modeling after him. Most famous verse in all of the Bible, the ones that even pagans can quote is what? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he took. God so loved the world that he robbed. Is that what it says? No, it's he gave. Jesus didn't come to gratify himself. He came to give himself on behalf of others. The overflow of God's grace in our lives empowers us to be like Jesus, to be givers. I think I've shared with you before a few years back. Well, it's happened many times. Really, almost every time I've been in a third world country on, on a mission trip and, and just meeting with the church there, I'm always overwhelmed by the generosity of believers who have little to nothing compared to what we have. And you may sit here and think, man, we, we don't have much in America. Let me take you to some places I've been around the world, and you'll realize you are wealthy, Right? You're in the top 1% of the world's population, even if you think that you have nothing today. And yet I sat there with those believers. I can remember one time we rolled up at the orphanage that we would work with in western Uganda, and we pull up there, and we get out, and the kids running to us. They're so excited to see us, and, and they want to put on a performance for us and sing to us. And, and as we're kind of gathering for that, they bring out all of this wonderful fruit. I mean, if you don't like pineapple, there's something's wrong with you. But I understand that when you buy a pineapple in America, it's been picked from somewhere not close to here. And so they pick it green and they ship it here and then it ripens, but it's never as sweet as it could be. But if you get a pineapple from a place where they just picked it off the vine and brought it and put it on your plate in front of you, it's like sucking on sugar. It is the glory of God in a fruit, (laughs) right? Some of you are like, I don't still like pineapple. There's something wrong with you. So they bring out this pineapple, they bring fresh bananas and and mangoes and all the things that they grew right there on the place. And it was like having heaven on earth. They brought us their best. Why? Because they're generous. They wanted to give. They wanted to be a blessing to us Americans who have so much. Giving models the heart of Jesus. When we give generously, we're modeling the heart of the Lord. I hope that your heart is resonating with what we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians 8. Some of you, I realize, might be wondering how you could ever participate in something like that. They're like, I just don't know. Right now, I don't have two nickels to rub together. Right now, I'm just so, I mean, I get a paycheck on Friday and it's gone on Saturday. I understand that. I live that life. Let me give you just three steps to generous giving. Three steps to move you in that direction. Here's the first thing I want you to see. It's not on your page. But honor God first with the tithe. You say, I don't know how I can do that. You need to do it regardless. Sometimes you just need to say yes to the Lord. Yes to the command of God. And I I firmly believe, I've told you many times, that I I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where the tithe in the Old Testament is negated in the New Testament. I believe it's still there. So that's entry level giving. And so if you want to move into a place of being generous, it needs to start with the first 10% of what God gives you through your your income. Start there. 
Just trust God for it. Believe God for it. I've told you many times how Kara and I, over the last almost 19 years of marriage, God's moved us to different churches, and, and rarely have we been moved to a church with this incredible boost in salary. Almost always, when you take in consideration the cost of living, it's been a decrease in what we were getting. It happened when we moved to Alabama. We bought a house, and we were, I think, 500 in the red every single month on paper. We moved here, and it was more than that on paper. We sold a house for $120,000 less than what we were able to buy a house here and didn't get but about 200 square feet more at the time, right? And yet God has always taken care of us, always met our need. Why? Because we honor the Lord in this basic area of giving. Second step, work to be debt-free. It's going to take work. Many people in the American church have believed that the lie that debt is acceptable and even beneficial. I would tell you this morning, it's not. Proverbs 22, 7 says, The rich rules over the poor, the borrower is the slave of the lender. Have you ever thought about all that you could do if you weren't enslaved to a credit card company or some sort of bank with a note and a lien against your income? Have you thought about how you could serve the Lord? Have you thought about what you could do to be a blessing and a benefit to others? How you could say yes to the mission trip to go overseas and not even really think about it because you're, you're living debt-free. How are you going to get there? It's going to take work. You need to think about that. You strategically think about how you get out of debt. Some of you need to go through our Financial Peace University that we offer periodically throughout the year. That's been a blessing and a benefit to so many families in our church. I love hearing stories of uh, families that will go through, that are young couples that will go through it and be like, Pastor, this has revolutionized our life. We used to always worry about money, fight over money. Now we know every dollar is going, and somehow there's always more left over. Financial Peace University is something some of you need to do. Others, you might need to, to have some one-on-one -on -one type coaching, and, and that's a Another element of our ministry that we're going to be offering here very, very soon with our own Ricky Reams. He's just been certified through Ramsey Solutions, and he's going to be able to come alongside our Financial Peace University side of the ministry and offer one-on-one -on -one coaching to help people work through their finances and build wealth even in their life. There's nothing wrong with that word that starts with a W. We need to work to get out of debt. Thirdly, Develop a discipline of generosity. See, our God is a giver, and as his people, we should reflect his generosity. It just kind of goes glove in hand, or hand in glove, I guess, is the way you'd say it. Like other disciplines, it's not going to happen on its own. It's going to require commitment. It's going to take work. It requires eyes that see the need of others. So many times we don't even see the need. So we got to retrain the way we look at people and situations. Some of you are not able to help others in need because you don't have the financial margin in your budget. So you got to train yourself. you got to develop this discipline, doing FPU, help, getting outside help, strategically moving in a direction so that you have the capital and the margin to be a blessing when you see a need. But you have to develop the discipline of generosity. It's going to require prayer and it's going to require budget. It's going to require eyes that are open and then a compassionate heart that feels and empathizes with others. What does all of this mean with Vision 2024? I know you're sitting there wondering that at 10:14 in the morning. It's like the story of every single week. I look at the clock for the first time and it's past time where I should have stopped preaching. But it's the way it is. <laughs> what is Vision 2024? It's about enriching ministry offerings 
expanding our Acts 1-8 strategy, enhancing our campus, and establishing margin for future ministry. This evening, those of you who are signed up and coming to our Thanksgiving meal, we're going to spend some time walking through this pamphlet. After that, it will be available for our whole church. This lays out in detail all the things that we want to do over the next three years around those four pillars that I just mentioned. It's going to require us to be a generous church. It's going to require us to trust the Lord. It's going to require us to sacrifice and, and trust the Lord's going to use us in an amazing way. And has he not always done that? We're celebrating 175 years as a church. And we did this last month when we celebrated officially the 175th anniversary, just thinking about all the things God's done in our story. God has been good and God has been faithful. God has enabled us to, to uh, reach people with the gospel and he's enabled us to preach the word of God. He's enabled us to, to uh, disciple and raise up people to send them to the mission field, send them as church planters. One of our own church planters now that we're partnering with in Blacksburg, he was saved, baptized, discipled right here in this church, Vince Oliveri. We'll be sending teams to their church in Blacksburg this next year. That's what God's been able to do through us because we put our yes on the table for 175 years. So Vision 2024 is about enriching our ministry offerings. In other words, we want to be able to do more to disciple people in our community through offering off-campus small groups, emphasizing D groups within our church family on a greater basis, taking our women's ministry and, and bolstering that, really bringing flesh to the bones of our men's ministry. We want to minister to people here. It's about expanding our Acts 1-8 strategy. We want to invest more in the work of the gospel by planting new churches and sending more teams and dollars to the mission field. I think I mentioned it last week, but over the next three years, what we want to do in our budget from a mission standpoint is move it from 6,000 and double that for three years in a row. So that means we'll move it from 6,000 to $48,000. We're giving to church planning and missions as a local church. That's going to require us as a church to tithe, right? I'd say it to people all the time. We wouldn't have to do campaigns like New Day or Vision 2024 if all of us just simply tithed. Tithed. You can tithe too, but tithed, right? I know that it should have some like an amen or something, but maybe that hits you on the foot a little hard. I didn't mean that, and yet I meant it a little bit. But it's true. I've read all kinds of reports and stories from, uh, done with churches, and every time I read a story like that or a report about that, it comes down to the same thing. If the people of God obeyed him in this area, the church would never have to ask for another dime. It's just a reality. It's a fact. So it starts there in the tithe, and then we're encouraging you to give above and beyond that. We want to do, we want to establish future or we want to enhance our campus by making improvements to our children's area downstairs, which will, after our renovation is complete next spring, will be completely dedicated to children's space, much more secure, much more um, given over to our children's ministry. And then lastly, we want to, um, we want to ex create greater margin in our budget for future ministry. That means we want to pay off the debt from the building that we built back behind us that enabled us to, starting next month, to renovate this space in the hall behind me. We want to pay that off as quickly as possible. And so we're just trusting the Lord is going to stir our hearts as he did the, the Hebrews in Exodus 35, that they're going to just, we're going to begin to give and, and just trust the Lord with all of that. We're going to give generously. 
So this evening we're going to talk in detail about all of that. Here's what I know. The last three weeks as we've talked about all this stuff, I'm going to say this in three minutes. As we've talked about all this, um, the Lord's doing more than just financial stuff. The Lord's moving in people's hearts. I was absolutely blown away that we had the attendance. We're not as, I don't think it's as, as uh, large of a crowd today as we were last Sunday, but I mean, opening weekend of gun season, all the rednecks should be in the woods, right? I mean, that's what I would expect. If I didn't preach, I would be there. Um, talking about stewardship, and, and as strongly as I do it, I, I mean, I don't really uh, hold back a whole lot. I'm not mean about it, but I'm just tell you the truth. I'm, I'm just a simple guy. I don't know anything else to do but just say, here's the truth. Go do something with it. I'm just simple. Just trust the Lord with it. And yet we had 209 in our worship service last week. I could see on people's faces, and I don't know everything about what's going on in a person's heart, but I can usually tell that something's going on there when I see tears going down faces. And so God's doing things spiritual, even while we're talking about the material. But even as we talk about the material, we're talking about the spiritual. You see that? Here's what I'm trying to say. God doesn't care about your money. He cares about your heart where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So many times our heart is tied to things when it needs to be tied to God. And this morning, I just want you to know God doesn't need your stuff. In fact, he already owns it, remember? It's his house. It's his world. He wants your heart. And today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's not a greater thing that you could do than to give your life to Jesus this morning. If you're not a, a person that's been saved, if your sin's forgiven, eternally changed through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what you need today more than anything else. Then as a follower of Jesus, yeah, you've got forgiveness and you're trying to walk that faith out, but what does your finances look like? Maybe you don't trust him in that area like you should. I know in my personal life, that's the area that's always been the greatest struggle. Why? Because it's many times the things I can control. I'm in charge with that. 